Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue in our series in the Psalms of Ascent, and here James Jordan is going to dive into the text of Psalm 132. We do invite you to take a look at those links down there in the show notes, specifically to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to make sure you are keeping up with our blog as we post new articles every Tuesday and Thursday. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Psalm 132. We introduced Psalm 132 last week by looking at the historical background and what we found was that the location known as Jerusalem or Salem had been known from the time of Abraham as the place where Melchizedek, the priest king, dwelled. And we saw that when the Israelites came back into the land, immediately they seemed to have tried to make Jerusalem a headquarters. We see that in Judges chapter 1, but that there was a strong fortress at Jerusalem which was never conquered and throughout the entire history was not conquered until David took it. And so the conquest of the land of Canaan is never completed until David took it. And there is, we may say, a progression or a pilgrimage which begins in Egypt and is never finished until David takes the ark to Mount Zion. We will see in this psalm tonight that the Bible itself speaks of that. The second thing we saw is that the taking of the ark into Jerusalem is the end of a recapitulation of the Exodus that begins in 1 Samuel 4, where God allows himself in the person of the ark to be taken captive by the Philistines and descends into a new Egypt, and then there is a new Exodus, a new judgment of God, a new plague, a new wilderness wandering where the ark is kept away from where the people live, indeed forgotten, as we will find. And there seems to be a wilderness wandering under the leadership of Samuel, a rebellion by the people which results in Saul becoming king, David wandering out in the wilderness for many years, and then finally becoming king. And David has been king for seven and a half years, which is just about exactly the same amount of time it took Joshua to make the initial conquest of the land. David then succeeds in taking Jerusalem, and the conquest is finished. So there is this very broad recapitulation or repetition of this basic Exodus pattern. Now, we stopped there last time in our survey of the history, and now we need, I believe, to get before us the facts concerning David and the ark. Let's turn to 1 Chronicles chapter 13. 1 Chronicles chapter 13. And we'll look at David bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. So you see, the ark has been ignored for years. 
Then all the assembly said they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together from Shihor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jearim. Now that's referred to in the psalm, and Kiriath-Jearim means the city of woodlands. Now that name, and we will see a little bit further, is a name reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, a place where there are many trees. This image of a planted area is used many times, and I'm going to make a theological point later on out of the psalm, so keep in your mind that the phrase city of woodlands or woods would prick the mind of the Israelite to think about the Garden of Eden. Kiriath Jearim, the city of woodlands. Verse 6, And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is Kiriath Jearim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord who is enthroned with the cherubim, where his name is called. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. And David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, because the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he had put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before the Lord. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Perez Uzzah, the outburst against Uzzah, to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all he had. Now what was the problem here? The problem was that the ark was only supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites on poles, and putting it on the cart was a sinful violation of explicit commands found in the book of Numbers. Secondly, Uzzah was not a priest and thus was not allowed to touch the ark. He was a Levite, not a priest. Thus, when God caused the ark to almost fall off the cart, Uzzah had no business touching it, and God killed him. Now, that may seem strange to us, but it was a judgment against David for his lax attitude about the law of God. And David now is afraid, and the ark stays where it is for three months. Then we read in chapter 15... Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of God to its place, which he had prepared for it. And David gathered together, and then there's a list of the various Levites that David gathered and all the people who were involved in bringing it up, and the fact that special music was composed for the occasion. Verse 16, Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives the singers with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed Heman, the son of Joel, and from his relatives Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and from the sons of Merari, their relatives, Ethan, the son of Cushiah. And these three men, Heman, Asaph, and Ethan, are men who wrote some of the Psalms, Psalms 88, 89, and many in that section of the Psalter. And then there's a description of how the ark was brought up. Verse 25, 
So it was David with the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands who went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And it came about because God was helping the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord that they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Now David was clothed with a robe of fine linen with all the Levites who were carrying the ark and the singers and Kenaniah, the leader of the singing, with the singers. David also wore an ephod of linen. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets, with loud sounding cymbals, with harps and lyres. And it happened when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looking out of the window, saw David leaping and making merry and despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of God and placed it inside the tent which David had pitched for it, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. All right, there's the bringing up of the ark to the people. And then we may read in chapter 17, And it came about when David dwelt in his house that David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I am dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under curtains. Then Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. And it came about the same night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell David my servant, Thus says the Lord, You shall not build a house for me to dwell in. For I have not dwelt in a house since the day that I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from one dwelling place to another. And God says that he is not going to allow David to build a house for him, but he will build a house for David. David then lays up in store all the raw materials which Solomon will use to build the house. Now that is background to Psalm 132. And with that in mind, let's read the psalm. This psalm is written almost certainly by Solomon. Maybe before we get there, we better look at that. In Second Chronicles chapter 6, we have the prayer of Solomon dedicating the temple. And the last two verses of that prayer read this way, verse 41 and 42 of Second Chronicles 6. Now therefore arise, O Lord God, to thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy might. Let thy priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let thy godly ones rejoice in what is good. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of thine anointed. Remember thy loving kindness to thy servant David. Now, that is almost word for word something found in the middle of our psalm, and for that reason we believe that Solomon wrote it. And this is what the psalm says. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not enter my house nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes nor slumber to mine eyelids until I find the place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of Jar. That's Kiriath Jearim, same words, the field of the woods. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to thy resting place, thou in the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy godly ones sing for joy. For the sake of David thy servant, do not turn away the face of thine anointed. That's from the prayer of Solomon. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. 
For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation, and her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. There will I cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. This psalm is in four basic sections, really three large sections. The first is an address to God to remember the affliction that David went through in trying to get the ark up to Jerusalem and his great desire to build a house for God. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf, all his affliction. This seems to refer most likely to the Hebrew word, I am told by scholars, those who are supposed to know these things. It has less to do with the suffering that David had gone through in earlier years at the hand of Saul, and much more to do with the kind of heart searching and the kind of intensity with which he had desired to do this for God. And the tremendous frustration that he went through as a result of the breach against Uzzah that we read about, all the difficulties that David had gone through and how much he had yearned to get the house built. And now, you see, Solomon has finally got it built, and he prays that God would bless him because of it, would remember David's yearning to build a house. And we are informed here in verse 2 how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into the couch of my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes, nor slumber to mine eyelids, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, what's David saying here? Well, in verse 3, he's saying, I will not enter my house. Now, actually, we know from the text that David was living in the house of Cedar when he was still thinking about this. So this is a figure of speech. And what David is saying is, my house cannot be established until God's house is established. Remember when we studied the book of Haggai, God's complaint against the people was that they had built all their houses up first and the house of God had not been repaired. And God said, first build my house, first take this corpse which is in your midst and give it new life, and then your own lives will be regenerated and restored. That's the basic pattern. First we build the kingdom of God, and then all these things which the Gentiles seek are added to us. First, says David, and this is what was on his heart, First, the house of God has to be built, and so to speak, I will not go into the tabernacle of my house. I cannot build my house until God's house is built. Second, David says, nor will I go into the couch of my bed. Most of the commentators take this as another way of saying the same thing. I don't think it is. I think it's a reference to having marital relations with his wife in the interest of establishing a dynasty. The reason I think that is that God's covenant promise to David later on in the psalm is, of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. And what David is saying is, it does no good for me to go into my wife, to have children, to try to establish my house in that sense until God's house is built. There's no point in me building a physical structure. There is no point in me building a familial structure until God's house is built. And then in verse 4 he says, I will not give sleep to mine eyes nor slumber to mine eyelids. 
Well, obviously David was going to sleep every night. But what he is saying in a figure is, I can never come to rest until God comes to rest. There is no Sabbath for me until God has ascended into his Sabbath and his work and his house is completed. Until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. And that's the attitude of the true Christian. I cannot rest until God is established in the earth. I cannot build my house except in the shadow of his, and his must be built first. I cannot build my family except in the shadow of God's family, the church, which must be built first. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these other things will be added to you. That is the biblical pattern, and that is what David is expressing here. Then we come to the second stanza, and here we have the final completion of the Exodus. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of the woods, in the field of Jar. Ephrathah is Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, this region is quite significant in the Bible. In the book of Judges, there are two stories at the end of the book both of which show people as exiles from the town of Bethlehem. The book of Ruth also starts out in Bethlehem, where we find that the house of bread is completely empty and the people are in a famine. Now, Bethlehem is just one of many ways the Bible has of making the same point made in Genesis 1-3, to that God establishes a place, man sins, and that place falls. So Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the field of the woods, all of these things point back to the Garden of Eden where man began, the place that's become cursed. And that's the place you leave. That's where David was from. And the progression of David's life, isn't it, is from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. Somebody else has that progression in his life. Who? Christ. Born in Bethlehem, progression to Jerusalem. In fact, the whole book of Luke, I mean, the whole second half of the book of Luke is this long series of stages a progression to Jerusalem. All right, this is a pattern which runs through the Bible from Eden to Jerusalem, from Genesis 2 to Genesis 22. All right, and in between there is the fall and redemption of man. Now, there's a pointer to this in the context of the Bible as a whole, in the context of what's said about Bethlehem, especially in Chronicles where David wants to go back to Bethlehem to drink of the water which comes from the spring, highly Edenic language the spring of water flowing out from Bethlehem. And then the field of the woods, the city of the woods. Here is the beginning of this progression. Lo, we'd heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the field of Jar. And then he says, let us go into his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. The progression from where the ark was found, forgotten in that land that man lost, and then bringing it into the land that God is giving in the fear of redemption. Can't elaborate on that. That's one of those basic patterns that we've talked about before. I think that at the very least the pattern's clear. Arise, O Lord, to thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. This is very significant here in verse 8, because in Numbers chapter 10, we find that that was the standard exhortation to God throughout the entire wilderness journey. Numbers 10, starting in verse 33. Thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. This is the beginning of the exit from Mount Sinai. They come to Mount Sinai, 
in Exodus 19, well, around in there, and they finally leave it in Numbers 10. Thus they set out from the Mount of the Lord three days' journey, with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them a three days' journey, to seek out a resting place for them. Isn't that language that we find here, seeking out a resting place? And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. And it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee before thee. Arise, O Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered. Here, arise, O Lord, to thy resting place, thou on the ark of thy strength. Now you see, we have enough background to understand this now. It means something to us. The journey begins at Mount Sinai, and it doesn't end until David brings the ark into Jerusalem. It doesn't end until then. It takes all those centuries. All that time the ark is on this pilgrimage. God is arising and tabernacling until he gets to Jerusalem. And then he builds the temple and settles and says that he will stay there forever. Now that is the progression of history. Starting in Eden, which is fallen and cursed, and going to Jerusalem. Starting in the new Eden, which is the land of Egypt. It says in Genesis 13, verse 10, that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. The Bible explicitly compares the land of Egypt to the garden of Eden. The garden of Eden falls into sin. The Israelites go into apostasy and worship strange gods. And in this pilgrimage, from that Egyptian Eden to Mount Zion. And that, in the middle of history, is a picture of the broader sweep of history as a whole. Now, this idea of pilgrimage, you see, and progression has influenced the church. And I will only mention this, not as something we necessarily want to do, but if you go to Catholic or Episcopal or Lutheran or Eastern Orthodox Church, you'll find that there is a progression by the choir, led by the priest or with the priest at the end, a progression from the door to the center of the church every Sunday. That's the way the service starts, isn't it? Everybody marches in. And there's a theological reason for that, which is all this progression theology in the Bible. In fact, in the Episcopal Church, one of the ways in which baptism has been done, the baptismal font is by the door, and the baptism is performed there, and then the family will proceed down to the front, bringing the child or the newly baptized person near to where the Lord's table is, to the throne of God. Well, that type of physical motion was designed to picture this large progression from outside to inside and all the way down to the throne of God. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. There's the progression. All these psalms of ascent, of course, are progression psalms where we are going to Jerusalem, and now we see how the ark has made this progression into Jerusalem first and before us. Then it says in verse 9, Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness, and let thy godly ones sing for joy. For the sake of David thy servant, do not turn away the face of thine anointed. There was a request here that God's people would be blessed with righteousness and that they would sing for joy. And, of course, we saw in the history when we read it how the people did bring the ark up with great singing. And then Solomon prays, For the sake of David, thy servant, do not turn away the face of thine anointed. In other words, here Solomon prays as a king who comes after David that God would bless him for the sake of David. All right? There is the second stanza of the psalm. 
The first, David's desire and his confession that he cannot build his house until God's house is built. The second stanza, bringing the ark from the outskirts, from the land from which it must come, into the city and the prayer that God would bless his people. And now the answer to this prayer in verses 11 to 18. The Lord has sworn to David, remember the prayer just before it is, don't turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons also will sit upon your throne forever. Unconditional and conditional, the covenant has both sides. But if men will persevere in righteousness, then God will bless them, it says. And here, David, who had said that he would not go into his couch, is guaranteed a dynasty because of his faithfulness. Now, what's interesting about that to us is, David never did succeed in building the house of the Lord. But his intention was as good as the deed. David set his face toward building the house of the Lord, did everything he could, and on the basis of that intention, God promises to him that his family will be established. And then, verse 13, For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his habitation. All throughout this entire history, from the time of Melchizedek, or from the Exodus on, the Lord has desired Zion. And so the Lord dwells in a tabernacle and goes from place to place until finally he gets to Zion. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. God will never move from Jerusalem. Of course, physical Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 A.D., but the new Jerusalem, which comes out from heaven and joins heaven to earth, is God's dwelling place forever. And that's the answer to the prayer in verse 8. Arise, O Lord, to thy resting place, thou in the ark of thy strength. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. The prayer is answered. And because God rests, therefore man can rest. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. God will take care of them as he restores the Garden of Eden, as he restores food to man. He will abundantly bless uh, an implication here of the manna in the wilderness and the land of milk and honey and all the other food that God promised to give to his people and the fulfillment of that in the Lord's Supper. Then there's an answer to the prayer in verse 9. Let thy priests be clothed with righteousness and let thy godly ones sing for joy. Verse 16. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation and her godly ones, the saints, will sing aloud for joy. God guarantees that he will do these things. He will build his kingdom. And then, an answer to the prayer in verse 1. Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction. And verse 10. For the sake of David thy servant, do not turn away the face of thine anointed. And the answer in verses 17 and 18. There I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall shine. Three basic promises to David. The horn of David will spring forth. The horn is a symbol of strength, and David will be strong. His strength will spring forth, that is, it will extend outward, and the descendant of David, Jesus Christ, will have strength, and his kingdom will expand outward. Secondly, I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. The lamp in the Old Testament is frequently a symbol for children, 
when the lamp goes out of a family, the family has come to an end. It says in 1 Kings 11.36, for instance, To his son I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem. And that's just one example of how the light or lamp shining out from the man is a symbol of his children. And here again, Jesus Christ has this lamp, the Holy Spirit, and all the children who proceed by virtue of the Holy Spirit from him into the world. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. The righteous are clothed with salvation. The priests are clothed with salvation. But the wicked are clothed with shame. Interesting, because to be ashamed is to be naked in the Bible. And so the irony is that they will be clothed with shame. Their nakedness exposed and God will heap this upon them. But upon himself his crown shall shine. So a third thing, the crown. And this is not the word which means a kingly crown, a royal crown, but it's the word Nazar from which we get Nazarite, which refers to any type of consecration or setting apart. And that the consecration or the righteousness of the true David will shine forth into the world. Well, these are ultimately fulfilled, obviously, in the Son of David, Jesus Christ, who chooses Zion and who dwells there forever. I'd like to make a couple of remarks about this in conclusion. How can we as Christians build our families and our lives and our dynasty? Well, this song shows us how. We have to put God in his house first. Very simple. That was David's attitude. I cannot build my house or build my dynasty until God's house is built. The book of Haggai has the same message. It's very easy for us to lapse into focusing our attention primarily on getting ahead or just staying abreast of things. But the Bible says that our orientation must be to build the house of God. And then that leads me to a second observation, and that is that our stage in history is not Solomonic but Davidic. We are not in a position of building the temple right now or of rebuilding it. We are pitifully few in numbers, but we can do what David did, and that is gradually accumulate the raw materials that our sons and daughters can use to build the house of God. And I don't mean just architecturally. It would take thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to build a decent church building. And where are we going to have that? And if we had that much money, would we want to use it to build a beautiful building? At this stage, is that what's proper? certainly is proper to glorify God that way, but with everything else that needs to be done, we'd probably decide to put the money into something else, wouldn't we? And there's so much ignorance in our land, and there's so many other things that we need to do. But what we can do is our own little parts in accumulating the raw materials for the temple. And then our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our Solomons, will enjoy the ability of putting all of this together in rebuilding the Christian faith and rebuilding a Christian world, which we have lost. And so it's part and parcel of our faith that it takes time and it takes generations to do things. But even if we can't succeed in accomplishing the final task of rebuilding the temple in our day, we can do like David did, and God blesses the intention and the effort as if it was the deed. So David comes and he says, I want to build a house for you, Lord. I know that my house can never be established until your house is established first. And God comes to David and says, no, it's not for you and your stage in history to build a house, but because of your intention, I will establish your house forever. And 
with all the various metaphorical and literal meanings that that has, that is the basic principle for us. Remember Yahweh for David's sake, all this painstaking effort, how he swore an oath to Yahweh, and vowed to the valiant one of Jacob, Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house. Surely I will not go up to the comfort of my bed. Surely I will not give sleep to mine eyes, to my eyelids slumber, until I find a place for Yahweh, tabernacles for the valiant one of Jacob. Behold, We heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go into his tabernacles. Let us worship at the footstool of his feet. Arise, Yahweh, to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints sing for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Yahweh swore an oath to David in truth. He will not turn from it. From the fruits of your body, I will place upon your throne. If your sons will guard my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, then their sons forever will sit upon your throne. For Yahweh has chosen Zion. He desired her for his habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here will I dwell for I have desired her. Her provision blessing I will bless, her poor will I satisfy with bread, her priests will I clothe with salvation, and her saints singing for joy, they will sing for joy. Here will I make the horn of David grow, I will prepare a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon him will his crown be resplendent. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, age after age. Amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.